Hello, and welcome to Resonant Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Stephen Titmus, and I'm a staff writer at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is David Morales. Morales is one of the most storied and successful DJs in dance music history. He started out in New York's disco era, graduating from playing local house parties to manning the decks at the Paradise Garage, and later the influential club Red Zone. During the 90s, alongside Frankie Knuckles and the Death Mix crew, he redefined the remix by radically reworking pop music records into house music anthems. These mixes were not only some of the biggest dance tracks of their day, they routinely crossed over to become hits in their own right, and even earned David a Grammy. In this far-ranging and occasionally emotional exchange, we discussed 40 years of house music history with one of the genre's pioneers. You can find our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. An exchange with David Morales is up next. family home you know what not really I mean my parents are Puerto Rican so they migrated from Puerto Rico so they didn't speak English and our house it was Latin music that they played and we talk about Latin music from the 60s okay but I was always attracted to black music I didn't care for Latin music I really didn't appreciate Latin music until I guess the 80s when I actually started making music and I really got into the details of what goes into production and, stuff. and then I appreciated more for its musicianship. So black music, was that something you kind of encountered in your neighborhood or? Yeah, we said we had an illegal social club downstairs from, from our apartment and it was like the typical old school social club, black with day glow paint and stuff and, you know, and, and, and a jukebox, you know, it wasn't, 
it wasn't a legal place, um, but they played black music, you know what I mean? And I was drawn to the black music, you know what I mean? I, I, that's, that was what I liked. I, I didn't like, um, I don't want to say white music per se, rock or anything. I, I wasn't into that. But anyway, I didn't grow up in a white neighborhood anyway. My neighbor was Puerto Rican and black, so it was all about soul. It was about stacks. It was about um, one ads, um, Mr. Big Stuff, you know? So from listening to music on that jukebox, when did you start playing records to other people? I think when I was about, I almost want to say 11 years old, when I bought my first 45, it was Put Your Hands Together by the OJs on Philadelphia International. And I played that record to death. <laughs> I stick the speaker out the window and like, you know, the you know, bullshit sounds in my home and I put the speaker out the window and that's, that's what it was, you know what I mean? You know, because b back in the day, it was about before the technology came out of two decks and a mixer, you play one record at a time. It's really what it was, you know? So you put it on, you know, or you used to have the spindle that used to hold five records on top and when the other one finished, the needle go up, blah, 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 and the thing drop, you know what I mean? God, technology's come a long way. <laughs> but I suppose, um, you know, that was obviously the beginning. When did you first see someone doing, you know, the non-stop disco mix playing with two turntables? When I was 13, my junior high school prom, and that was when... Uh, the first 12-inch that was out was 10%, uh, Double Exposure on Salsa Records. And I was just mesmerized by, here, see this guy, you know, he's got two decks, a mix, and I was like, wow. I was just like caught up in it, you know. And they used to, we used to, used to have block, we used to call them block parties in Brooklyn, where guys used to set up outside and... and and, and, and they used to play, you know, and I was a dancer. I used to, I used to battle, you know what I mean? But um, the music bit was something that I, you know, I liked music. So it wasn't about being a DJ because there was no DJ culture. It was about loving music, having the passion. And like I used to hang out with my boys and they would say, yo, Dave, play some music for us. You know, we'd hang out, we'd hang around, we'd smoke, we'd drink some beers. Like, yo, Dave, play some music for us. And that's really what it was. I just sat by the stereo and just was the selector. And then when I saw the thing about the mixer, I remember one time I, I, I played at a house party. Or it was something my, my friend's sister-in-law was having a party in San Francisco by the village people was out at that time. I saw the guy playing, and it was two decks, two techniques, and a clubman one mixer. You know, I mean, he had headphones. He was queuing. I was like, "Well, you know, like, what is he doing?" You know. And my friend asked, "Yo, D, you want to play some music?" I was like, "Uh, yeah, sure." You know, what I mean, I, I didn't know what I was doing, man. You know, what I mean, I put on the headphones. Like, I think I know what I'm doing. I flicked the switch, and I heard the queuing of the other side. I was like, "Wow, okay, wow," because I did everything braille. You know what I mean? My first mixer was a mic mixer from Radio Shack that I got from the, from the blackout, you know, that, that I rigged to put two decks through it, but, you know, it had no cue and it had no nothing, you know what I mean? It was just like something like I threw together, you know? And I, I guess it's important to get across, like, there was no guide back then, you know? You just had to kind of pick these things up from people in your neighborhood or that you'd seen, perhaps. Well, you know what? Because it was all new, the mix wasn't important. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The mix wasn't important. Uh, you know, the whole thing about nonstop disco mix was that there was never a pause that was before. 
You know what I mean? It was no longer pause. Now it was just nonstop. So that was the whole advertisement, nonstop disco mix. You know what I mean? So that's when the era of, you know, pitch control, turntables, and, and the mixes were born. Eventually, you started to throw your own parties. Why did you want to start doing that? Well, you know, I went from from entertaining my friends, which was really, really what it was, to entertaining more friends. And I mean, even when I was in high school, I did hooky parties, which were great, you know what I mean? Which was, you know, people would cut class, we'd take over somebody's apartment because their parents went to work. <laughs> we'd bring a sound system, literally, after 9 a.m., their parents went home. Oh my God, the poor apartment used to be so regular. You know, people putting their feet up against the wall and everything. And people would cut class, it was hilarious. Advertise. Okay, free beer and free joints. My God, you should see like, oh, we have 100 kids show up to go, to go to a party. So imagine on a block waiting as we're setting up, sound, bringing the sound system up the stairs and all this kind of stuff, and 9 o'clock in the morning on a school day. So, I mean, it, it sort of like started like that somewhat. And what really got me into at, to really doing parties was I had access to a club. And I would hire or invite promoters or hosts, as it was back then. I would handle the logistics, and I would just ask for, imagine, I would give them the door and everything, and I would just ask for a, for a DJ fee. What I started to realize was that people were coming for my music. It wasn't for the, for the host that I was having. So it made me realize that I didn't need people and you know, I used to design my own flyers on my, on my lunch break at work. I used to post them on glue by the train station, the bus stops. I used to do the mailing. I used to decorate the club. I used to buy the fruit. I mean, I, I, I used to do everything, you know? I remember even dragging my records in a shopping cart during a blizzard in a storm, you know what I mean? Like down on Main Avenue just to make it to my gig. I mean, the dedication was like, you know, um, but it was like my neighborhood. So like when I did parties, it was in my neighborhood. So I had people from my neighborhood that I knew, you know, and you know, you start out 50 people, 100 people. To, it got to a point I was doing six, 700 people. I started to make a living. Amazing. And um, what was your neighborhood like back then? It obviously must have been a very different place. It was Brooklyn, Flatbush Avenue. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, nothing pretty, but, you know, everybody knew each other. You, everybody grew up in the neighborhood. You know, I grew up where I was in that neighborhood from like I was eight. So here I am, 19, 20, and doing parties uh, in my neighborhood. I mean, I did house parties during the years, but when it came to actually playing in a club, which is any person that likes to play music, any DJ, their dream is to play in a club. It really doesn't matter what club, it doesn't matter whether there's anybody at the club, you know what I mean? I just wanted to play, you know? And there could be nobody in the club. I just wanted to play, you know? And I suppose those very early club gigs, they were an avenue for a big change in your career when you met Judy Weinstein and were able to join a record pool. Can you just tell us about that? Because obviously Judy is hugely influential in well, your career. When I, when I joined the record pool, really the dynamics changed. And, you know, to be part of the record pool was something, it was an association. And you're talking about for the record, record pool, which had the best DJs of the tri-state area, if not America. I mean, we're talking about Jelly Bean. We're talking about... Larry LeVan, we're talking about T. Scott, we're talking about Tony Humphreys, Bruce Forrest, some of the, the, the great mixers, you know what I mean, Steve Thompson. 
it's through the record pool that because of meeting her, I got to play at the garage. Because of her record pool, I got to meet and be introduced to remixes and producers and how I got exposed to, you know, to the studio. So it was a great place to network. I mean, the record pool was almost like going to a record store. So come Thursday and Friday, everybody would get together and you talk shop, you know, which is something that's really sorely missed today. You know, that, that camaraderie that, you know, everybody me, how's it going? You talk about clubs, you know, there, there was more of a support structure than we have today. You know what I mean? Today, you know, it was nice when every Friday you went to the record store and you meet up, yo, you're going to record, come on, let's go over there, you know, and then you talk shop, yo, you know this record, you know this record, you know this record, you know what I mean? People shared records, they shared their opinions about records, you know? That's gone today, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, I suppose in a way people are more connected through the internet, but to have that social setting, that actual place where you meet, that's something that's perhaps gone from, from DJ culture slightly. Yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, I, I was here, I mean, I went to the record store, a couple of records stores that I had no idea that some record stores actually still existed, you know? And you sort of like missed that, you know what I mean? You know, when you went to the record store and you went to your normal record store, or they knew you were coming and they have your stack ready for you when you arrive, you sit on the side, you go to your tunes, you know? Maybe five copies or something came in and you know you, know you had yours, you know what I mean? You know, I, I find it when I went to some stores, it's like, it, it's, it's like, wow, it's so sad, you know? It, because really, that was such an important part of, of DJing, technically speaking, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely, yeah, the culture surrounding it. But just to talk about the record pool for a second, like how did you get on it? Because obviously you're saying all of the best DJs were around. I, I'm sure it couldn't have been easy to get on a record pool well, like that I got, right away. I, um, I got recommended, uh, a friend of mine, Kenny Carpenter, he was a member of the pool. He was working at one of the top clubs at the time. It was called Bonds International on, in Manhattan on Broadway. It was a club that held 5,000 people. It was, it was massive. I mean, you could drive a car around it and do laps. And... Um, in the record pool, you were only able to be a member if you played at a club. So you had to get a letter with the corporate seal on the letter to prove that you, that you work at the club. Otherwise, it wasn't about, you, you had to be working. And you had to you know, come in and you may make your top 25 because you got records, so you had to do feedback, as we call it. You played uh, 50 bucks 50 bucks a month, but my God, for, for the 50 bucks, the amount of records you've got, I mean, you've got easily 100 records a month. All the promos, you know what I mean? A lot of crap as well, you know what I mean? But a lot of promos, things that wouldn't come out, wouldn't come out, you know, commercially. You know what I mean? It was almost like, it, it was like a VIP record store. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And of course, through that, you got to play at the Paradise Garage. Were you, were you 21 I when was that? I was 21. I never played in New York. Never played in New Never York at that point. Never played in New York. Never played in New York. Had you been to the Paradise Garage? I, I went there as a dancer. Yeah. So I, I went there as a dancer um, a couple of times on a straight night because Friday was straight, Saturday was gay. And um, they never heard me play. And of course, I was one of those kids that was like mesmerized and like dream. Wow, you look at the DJ booth and, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't see the booth because it was up. But my guy, you know, he just, you, you know, you, you fantasize, you know. And when I got asked to play, I really thought it was a joke. Because it was like, there were so many other DJs that really deserved to play there before me. You know what I mean? That I, that I knew for a fact, you know? I mean, a lot of people weren't happy that I played because they felt like, well, who's this guy? You know what I mean? And I never, I went from Brooklyn, 
from playing like at a like a, like a small social club to playing at the Paradise Garage. You know what I mean? In one weekend, I played a Friday and a Saturday. I played twenty two hours. I played eleven hours Friday and I played eleven hours Saturday. Amazing. And was that the one that Jocelyn Brown performed yeah. at as well? I mean, they said, "Who you know, who do you want to perform?" I said, "I want Jocelyn Brown." Jocelyn Brown was one. The other one was. Um, the record was no news, but I forgot. No, the other one was Captain Rap. I come to realize it was one of the first records that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis wrote and produced, and I had no idea. Uh, you had the ear back then for, for, the, for the hit. <laughs> I mean, you know, well, you know, back then it was all music. Yeah, of course. You know what I mean? But speaking specifically about the gig, you know, what was going through your mind? So young, you know, you're playing this amazing club. Do you remember? Were you nervous? Did you remember what, was, what your feelings were? Well, the, the thing was that they had Thorns, Thorns 125 Mark IIs. And I asked, can, I, can they install techniques? They were like, no, you have to play an alternative. And I was like, shit, you know? But when I did my first mix, I looked at a friend and I was like, wow, the turntables were like, amazing. You know what I mean? They were just so smooth. And I just knew it was going to be amazing. You know, yeah, you talk about three decks and a real to real. You know what I mean? It was, it was like, you know, no monitors. So you imagine you were up like on the second level. There were no monitors back in them days. You played off the delay in the room. So imagine, another, you know, you had to spin, you had to be locked, your mix had to be locked, and you play with a delay, which is pretty, pretty, you know, but it was amazing. It was amazing. I could have kept playing for, I could have kept playing for days, man. And after that first weekend, I came back the following year in January, two weekends straight. You know, the guy was really impressed with me, you know what I mean? And, the thing was that they wanted someone that nobody knew. That wasn't part of the politics, part of the drama. So I was really um, naive to it because I wasn't part of the scene. I was from Brooklyn. Mm. You know what I mean? I was, just, you know, I was a knucklehead from Brooklyn. And so I wasn't part of the, the scene, the drama, the politics, the groupies, you know what I mean? Because imagine how Labby's groupies, his friends, like, was, nobody knew me. Nobody knew me. I came out of left field. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I came out of left field. People were like, how did you get that? You know what I mean? People were jealous. People were like, how, how dare you? How dare he? I was like, what the fuck? It's like, okay, what do you do? You know what I mean? But in a way, it was perfect for Larry because he didn't piss people off around him. He had this new kid come through. No, he didn't. He wasn't, he didn't Larry didn't ask me to play. Oh, so it was the owner? It was the owner. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. They, 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 they did it to get on his nerves. Is what they did. Yeah, yeah. So they had to get somebody that's outside mm. of the loop that wouldn't be afraid of Larry, that, mm. you know, wouldn't be, don't want to be part of that. You know what I mean? So was I used? Maybe. You know what I mean? I, I didn't know. I didn't care. You know what I mean? It was, it gave me, I got a lot of exposure and it made me the new kid on the block. Absolutely. So from there, did you start to get more gigs in Manhattan and, and, and oh, in yeah. New York generally? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. I was hot. Mm. I was hot. And what were the other clubs that were an influence on you? I, I read that Better Days was uh, one as well. The Loft was one. Yeah. The Loft was a big influence. Mm. I went from being a commercial DJ, by that I mean, you know, where I played, I knew about the hit records, to underground music by going to the Loft, all these imports, being introduced to Vinyl Mania Records as opposed to downtown records. And Vinyl Mania was, you know, you heard things at the law for the garage, and you saw classic, you know, some records were 40 bucks, 50 bucks, 75 bucks, you mean some classics, you know, there were some records that were hard to get. 
that the only place to get those those records was Vinylmania. My first resident in the city was a place called Inferno. The first one was called Thriller, then they changed it to Inferno. And you know, we, we did acts in them days. We're talking about 1985. On the same time, I started to do Better Days on a Thursday night. And then somewhere around 86, 87, I was doing Zanzibar. You know, I played to different places along the way, the world. Um, th then my next big one was, the, was Red Zone. Red Zone was, was, was a big pivot for me as well. I just started coming to the UK and I was playing music from the UK. I was really one of the only guys that was playing this different music. I was playing KLF, What Time Is Love, uh, Soul to Soul, Snap the Power, Pump Up the Jam, you know. So aside from American house music, you know. And I was mixing a lot of records at that time for the UK. I mean, it's, it's the UK that put my name on the block when it came to remixing records. It wasn't America. But all these imports were coming over, you know, they had my name. So anyway, from the world, you know, the tunnel, Club USA, blah, 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 blah. All of them, basically. When did you first start editing records? Because that was obviously a, a, a big part of your career. You know, your move from the DJ to the studio. Was that like the mid 80s? Well, editing, when I started with editing, I started with a, a small reel to reel. I used to do like my own mashups per se. Mm. You know what I mean? So I would put two records together, or let's say I'd have one main record and I'd float some other records on top, or overlay, and, and record pieces and then edit it together. And I would play my own special edit at the club. From there, I went to, I was editing, I would edit people's remixes. They would say, you know, because back in them days, it, it, it was all tape. So you had these reels that each had like many different passes because back in them days, there was no automation. So you had a bunch of passes with different pieces. So you imagine I would get 10 boxes of different parts of, of the mix and I'd have to, I have to listen to all of them and then and remember pieces because you would have two machines, one that played the main one, one to copy to, and then you edit, edited the copy. So from those 10 boxes, I will give a 12 inch, a dub and a radio. And how long would something like that take? Oh my God, it really depends on the time, you know. Um, depends how much music you have to listen to. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally variable. So it's really, you know, editing was what got me first into the area of, of production. And it was playing at Better Days with Bruce Forrest that he was remixing at the time. He was one of the big mixes at the time. And he was like, he was like a super geek, you know what I mean? Bruce, and we're talking about 1984, 85, where he had samplers with triggers in a DJ booth. He had a drum machine and, and a keyboard, you know what I mean? Besides three decks and a reel-to-reel. -reel. 1984, that's amazing. 84, 85. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, you're, you're doing live overdubs, drum overdubs, have David Coyes to come play keyboard overdubs, two cork samplers with a foot pedal to trigger and, an, and another trigger to set So it was like, it was like doing live overdubs over a set. So he was a big influence on you, Bruce, then? He was, he was the man. He, besides being a brilliant DJ, but production-wise, I mean, he inspired me to get my first Casio CZ-101 keyboard, mm. my first drum machine, you know? I was trying to play a keyboard even though I couldn't play, I couldn't play a note. You know what I mean? Yeah. I practically still can't play a note. <laughs> but, 
But you know, it really inspired me to go that route. I mean, I never, I was never a musician. I never aspired to be a musician. I just love music, you know. So I guess your first record, you know, official record was two Puerto Ricans, a black man, and a Dominican. No, my oh. first one was actually some in sync. Sometimes love. Oh, okay. On Easy Street Records, produced oh. by Blaze. Oh. I actually even got them the record deal. You got Blaze the record deal? Yeah, record deal. I was playing at Zanzibar, and I met Kevin Hedge. And I even got them the record deal. Amazing. And I had David Cole play keyboards on it. And um, that was my first remix. And then I did a couple of things for A&M Records. My first big remix was Imagination, uh, mm. Instinctual, Arthur Baker produced. And that was 1987. And then shortly after that, I remixed Love Will Save the Day by Winnie Houston. For me, that was like Winnie just came out. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I'm mixing Winnie Houston. My God, they wanted a house mix. It was like, okay, I gave him a house mix, but it was too cool for them. Oh, really? It wasn't commercial enough. You know what I mean? And it became a really, they only released a promo. And I really was disappointed because it, it, it would have meant a lot for my career at the time that, that I was that was starting off in, in the remixing game. Well, of course, that progressed a lot much, much later uh, in your career, you know, soon after. Well, you know what, remixing, I mean, remixing today is, is, is another story. I mean, people do remixing today it's a whole nother game. I mean, when the remixing game first started, remixing was really about taking the original elements and just extending it. Maybe you added a couple of things, but you didn't go that way. You know what I mean? You couldn't, you couldn't distort the record. You know what I mean? It was really just create an intro, create a break, create an outro piece. Then it was about, okay, add a couple of keyboards, you know? And... Then it became, but you always worked with a song, in a sense. You always worked with a song. So I was a remixer, so my job was to remix records, period. End of story, you know? And then, surely soon it became, once time stretching started, then everything was had to be time stretched. And then when it came to the point when it started with the time stretch, that's when you got rid of all the music. Now, so now it changed. Even when I did Dream Lover, when I did Dream Lover, we ch it changed the whole record. Now it's almost like rewriting a new song. Okay, it's still the same title. May maybe some lyrics are the same, but I actually rewrote the record. You know what I mean? You went from pop to a dance record. But yeah, I didn't get any publishing. I didn't get any royalties. You know what I mean? But, you know, yet I produced something new. She came to the studio. We, we, we sang it. We programmed it. We did every, the whole the, the whole thing. Yeah, know? I think that's a really important point to make because you know Mariah at that time was you know a, a, a very big star. You know, ninety three, married to Tommy Mottola, like the yeah. kind of boss of the of the whole label. But yet she resung it for you. Were you were you surprised that you know she went back and did well, it? Well, yeah, you because I, because I really called a bluff. Yeah, because when they sent it to me the original, I was like, nah, this is too bubblegum. I can't do shit with this record. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's not happening. Yeah. I'm like, the other way it's going to happen if they resang it, mm -hmm. and they actually floated the idea to them, and they was like, okay, should we sing it? I never, I never produced a record. Yeah. I mean, two Puerto Ricans and a black man was a whole other story. That was just, that was just being in, at the record pool, you know, mixing records together, and then we, we edited together. That was two Puerto Ricans and a black man mm. and a Dominican, you know, it was, it was all it was. But this was Mariah Carey. I'm going to the studio, it's like one of my first artists, is fucking Mariah Carey, you know what I mean? And she was like, you know, it was her and Winnie back in them days, you know? 
And she never goes into the studio with a producer at all. At all. She's one that does things on her own. She doesn't need, you know, she knows what she wants. She used to tell me, she's like, you're the only one I go into the studio with, besides Walter Amanasi. But in general, in general, she was like, I don't go into the studio with anybody. She's like, it's just, you know, I brought something different to the table. You know what I mean? Because she wasn't into dance music, a house per se. And obviously the results were, you know, obviously great for everyone involved. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. I, I did about, I've done at least 11, 12 records with her. Yeah. And the majority has been saying you know yeah absolutely and I guess I guess it's got a very important thing to, to note about your career you, you've almost changed the dynamics of a remix like you said when you first no change it for sure because yeah. it wasn't just it was Mariah it was Shabba Ranks Mr. Loverman that was a dance hall record and again a record that I mix I changed it I flipped the whole thing I even sampled Maxi Priest from another record that I did with him the record was really called Champion Lover they even changed the name of the song but again, all I got was a fee. That record sold over millions, a few million records. So the original writers and the producers, they ran to the bank, but it had nothing to do with them. Mm. Anyway, I got Aretha Franklin, Seal. And I suppose it, it, it's, it's you and Judy in a way that have you know, helped kind of build a bridge for remixes of a certain caliber to, to actually get better deals, to get the writing credits and stuff like that, you know, before you guys did well, those kind well, of mixes. We, well, we, yeah. weren't, we, we weren't getting any writer's credit. No. You weren't getting it. You weren't getting it. I mean, eventually down the road, you got royalties, but you weren't getting writer's credit, which you really, I mean, even today, to, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's really not fair because it, the mixing, remixing game has changed so much the dynamics that you're giving away your production in, re, in reality, you know what I mean? So no matter what, I mean, and today, more worse than ever, I mean, and it's only because it's the only outlet for people to to show, you know, to expose themselves, technically speaking. But like, a, a lot of these things, is, is, you, should, you can't even call them remixes in, in reality. They're, they're really reproductions or, or rewrites even, you know? And I, I suppose in that, Mid '90s period when you was having you know huge success, but you know taking these records and turning them into even bigger hits, you know like Shab Shabarank you mentioned. Um, For me, it was Shaba. Yeah. Pump up the jam. Finally, Space Cowboy was another one. I mean that that wasn't even a song. That was a jam. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that one was really like taking pieces and creating a song like verse chorus verse chorus. That it wasn't like that. You know what I mean? But I mean, you know, it's. It's how I made it was how I made got my reputation. You know? And I suppose you know when you, when you're ch churning out these hits, you know massive hits in Europe and all across the world. You know some of the you must be getting huge offers at that time from from major labels. You know to work with their stuff. Did you ever turn anything down? You know even though the money must have been great. You know. Oh yes, I think my biggest one was probably the Rolling Stones. <laughs> and they're like, we want to know what he's done. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you joking? Like really? I was like, you know what? Do your homework. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I've turned down. I've turned down Whitney Houston. I've turned down. Oh, uh, you know, one of my favorite people I worked with that was really nice was you two. They were great. Mm. They sent me champagne. Thank you very much. I mean, I met I met Edge and Bono. Hooked up in in, in Japan. You know, they were, they were really. You know, with some for some people, was great to work with. You know, what I mean, Mariah was one hard worker, brilliant. I don't care what people say, she works. You know what I mean? I don't know if she lip syncs or whatever. All I know, she works. She knows what the hell she's doing. Another one is Seal. Amazing. One of the most amazing voices I've ever heard in my life. You know what I mean? Which is like, 
Wow. And, you know, I've worked over the years with some amazing talent. You know I mean, some of the best. I mean, Aretha Franklin. I think, I think my, Julio Iglesias, even. I, I think my most intimidating, and we talk about icons. We talk about legends. We talk about real legends. I mean, so maybe some kids will hear this right now while we're talking. I'll be like, Julio Iglesias, I'll, I'll please, I'll please. But you really don't know what that is for a person that, you know, these people are, are legends. They are icons from the generation, you know what I mean? They, they're in the Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, these artists, you know what I mean? They've worked with the best. They've sold millions and millions and millions of records. Me going into the studio with Aretha Franklin is like, uh, 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 uh. Aretha was my most intimidating artist I've ever worked with because Aretha Franklin worked with Quincy Jones. She's working with, she's the queen of soul. You know what I mean? She, I wasn't even born when she was already, you know, making hits, records, you know what I mean? And here I am working with the queen, with the queen of soul. You know what I mean? When, when I look back on my career as far as making records, what has brought me this far, you know what I mean? It's, it's working, having had the opportunity and the pleasure of working with such great musicians from around the world. I mean, and, we, and, and we're not talking about DJ culture, we're talking about music, we're talking about songwriting, production, it's, we're talking about a whole nother level, you know what I mean? But a great producer, if you're a good DJ, makes you a better DJ. Why do you think that is? Because you understand music more. Yeah. You understand keys, like, you know, you have programs out now with this tractor or record box and you know, there's something about keys, so they show you show you the key for, you know, I mean, some people don't know nothing about keys, you know what I mean? I, I, I don't need about keys, you know, it's all about, it's about having a good ear. It's about understanding arrangement. It's about having records talk to each other, you understand? Because you're understanding the melody, so you're, you're like, you're, you're, you're interacting with melodies, rhythms, you know? Mm. You obviously mentioned many of the great artists you've worked with in your career, but perhaps one of the most important ones in your own personal career was was Frankie. Can you just tell us how you first met Frankie Knuckles? Me and Frankie met in New York, and of course I've heard about Frankie Knuckles. I mean, from Tracks Records, from DJ International, and of course from 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 Judy as well. You know, I mean, I I played Frankie Knuckles remix from Tracks. You know, I mean, I played Baby Wants to Ride. Uh, I played um, Your Love. You know. There was another record he did, um, I think it was uh, Peter Black, it was uh, Only the Strong Survive, and that was on DJ International. So I met him through Judy, he came to the record pool, he was playing at The World, and we immediately immediately hit it off and became friends, real close friends. And, um, you know, with Frankie, together we launched our remix careers. We created the Def Mix sound. I mean, we owned walls and record stores. We come to England, we were like gods, you know what I mean? And, you know, with Frankie, I traveled the world with him, you know? Mm. You know, I spent a lot of time with him, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, we were on the road, we were in the studio. You know, we, we were beyond mates, you know yeah, what I mean? absolutely. We were beyond mates, you know what I mean? You made a statement, you know what I mean? First time at the Grammys, first time traveling, you know what I mean? And, you know, we traveled together in the beginning of my, you know, my career, so, you know, Frankie was, was a very special person, you know, very, very special. Frankie was Frankie. Frankie had a unique, Frankie had a style. 
he was, Frankie just had an aura about him that was just beautiful, you know? And it was really, really hard losing him. It's got to be tough when you, you know, someone for 20 years you've worked, spent hundreds of hours with working with, you know, like a brother, like you say, like a family member. Well, we were Def Mix. We did it. Visa, you know, we were the brand together. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. We, you know, you have masters at work. You had Kenny and Louie. That was me and Frankie. You know mm. what I mean? One thing I found interesting that I read, you know, that obviously that was obviously a huge blow losing Frankie. But one thing it did very quickly, number of days, it inspired you to go back into the studio and, and start making music because you thought that was what Frankie would have wanted you to do. Well, you know what? It's like when I found out, it's funny because I saw him like probably like the week before in Miami. And I, you know, I remember hugging him and telling him, I love you, I miss you. And then when I got to New York and I, it's a very numbing. It's like I couldn't even grip it. You know, and I've lost people before in my life over the years, but Frankie was really hard. You know, it's like uh, I, I lost something. And for three days, I didn't come out of my hotel room. I didn't go on the internet. I didn't want to answer my phone. I didn't, I mean, besides talking to Judy, because we had to be there for each other as a support structure, you know. But aside from the family, I, 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 I couldn't, you know, and even to write something. You know what I mean? It's like, it took me a moment to, and even to write something was very difficult to write something. You know what I mean? It's like the emotions that are pouring out and to finally let go. But I had to arrive at the point to realize that you know, he wouldn't want me to sit around. You know what I mean? I was like, he, this is not what he would want. You know what I mean? It's like mm -hmm. enough with the moping, you know what I mean? And, you know, try to not make light of it, it's not that, but, you know, it is what it is, and, you know, we have to carry on, mm. you know what I mean? So try to turn it into another way as opposed to a moment of sadness, because it's sadness no matter what, you know what I mean? It's like even me trying to talk about it now, I had to stop myself from, you know, breaking down. And sometimes I'll, I'll listen to some records that we've done or that he's made, and it just brings it full circle, you know? Mm. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. You know what I mean? So, you know, it came to like, so even now, you know, we've done some tributes and it was more like, you know, you have to celebrate. You know what I mean? We didn't have a funeral service for him awake. You know, we, we bought some of the great singers that we've worked with. And there's be Sounds of Blackness come in and she sang The Pressure. And, you know, we put a really beautiful show on and we sent them off in a good way. Yeah. And, you know... Uh, I, I had friends who were at the one you'd done at Glastonbury and, you know, they said it was the best thing they saw there, you know, the best thing they saw that year, you know, and the emotion that you brought to those tribute concerts was, was really special and it touched a lot of people. And I think, as you were saying, Frankie would want people to celebrate in that way. I think you really, really carried it off and I think, you know, that's, that's, well, that's really to be celebrated. His, his passing definitely had triggered something in me, mm. musically speaking. And a lot has changed for me musically since Frankie's passing. You know, and people will say, oh, you know, it's, you have to step up and you have to carry on the torch. And it's like, I can never fill Frankie's shoes. Nobody can. You know what I mean? So I'm not here to try to, I'm just here to carry on how he will want. I'm not here to duplicate, to make Frankie records, because nobody can. 
even though we work together. There's nobody that was closest to him when it comes to making music than me, that's for sure. So it's just about, you know, carry on. There'll be nobody that will ever be able to replace him, come to Def Mix, and be my sidekick again, you know what I mean? I don't think I will ever have that again. Thinking about some of the work that you're doing today, you know, you're, you're still very active. You know, you, you've still doing Red Zone stuff, for example. Can you tell me a little bit about how you decided to do some more of that kind of older stuff? Well, you know, how, did anybody tell you house music is back? <laughs> <laughs> you know, house is back, the 90s is back. Um, Does that seem weird when people start saying that to you? Because, oh you know, you, you, are, you are before it's house like, music. You know what? You know, it, they had to accept it once Disclosure did something that sounded very 90s. It's like, oh, it's cool in a young kid. But God mm. forbid a guy that's been from the 90s, it is like, oh, well, I want this. You know, the Red Zone was, was a big moment for me. And the Red Zone mixes were very happening, you know what I mean? Uh, very popular because the Red Zone mixes was, it was in New York. It was something different. You know I mean, there was something unique about it. it was... Some people have said to me that, I mean, everybody played Red Zone mixes from Sasha to Digweed to Carl Cox to Judge. Everybody back in them days played Red Zone mixes. So it was, it was, it, it was something, the Red Zone mixes were edgy, dark. You know what I mean? They were always dark. So people always say, you know, why don't you do some Red Zone stuff? Red Zone stuff. These DJs around the world, guys that have been playing for you, do some Red Zone stuff. It's like, oh, okay, you know, you know. It's almost like going back to basics. Mm. You know what I mean? So. I just released Red Zone Project Volume 2. Uh, last year I did Volume 1, which was like an EP, four, four, four track EP, I think. I think this one's like eight or nine. I did a, a new uh, a face single that I released in February with, no, January with uh, Kim Mazel called Lovin'. I have a new face single coming out uh, in June called Everybody Get Up featuring Keith Anthony Fluid. I have a new record with Janice Robinson coming out as well. I have another one. I'm, I'm at the point now that like I'm releasing something every single month now. I'm in love with Ableton. I love Ableton. I live with Ableton. I mean, I my studio's right here, mm. literally right next to my feet. You know what I mean? I got a little keyboard. No, you, you're gonna laugh. It's like I'm not kidding. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, you know, I, I love that. You know, not to get away from what you're saying, the, the technology and stuff. You know, so. I'm into the red one is like my tracky side. Mm-hmm. That's where I'm at with that. It's very interesting that yeah, you're you're just pointing to a tiny keyboard that you're pulling out from your bag there. But you know, in the in the '90s, you know, yourselves. I, don't, I think a lot of people might not even appreciate this. You know, yourself and Moss at work. You guys have spent hundreds, literally hundreds of hours in the studio a week, almost. You know, I used to spend an average five days a week in the studio, and I'm talking about almost twenty four seven. I would sleep on the sofa. What makes you have that kind of work rate? Because, you know, that's... We were, we were working. We were, we were having fun. Yeah. You're having jam sessions. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're with a group of people. I mean, you're with musicians. You're creating. You're making music. It's, it's not tedious. You know what I mean? The only thing that's tedious is listening to the same record for 48 hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, the day one was overdubs. Mm. Day two was mixing. So... You know, there was an average of 48 hours spent on each record. So I was doing an average of two to three records a week. Wow. Um, do you remember any particular weeks that were 
particularly great like you know there must have been a week where you you know say done Alison Lyric Where Love Lives and then maybe another track the oh, other yeah, week for sure. yeah. let me say, and there were some records I was like mm, 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 you know but I was in a, I was a remixer my job was a remixer you know what I mean so if a record company wanted to pay me money to remix a record that was my job you know so back in them days it was different tempos you know what I mean you know it was about remixing a record making it more danceable is what it was all about it wasn't that I, whether I played it, whether it's something I would play in the club or not. It wasn't about that. And I suppose around that period, it was one of the first periods where you really started touring a lot, you know. Was it unusual for you to, um, when the first time you came to, say, the UK to play like an hour set where you'd come from this New York culture of playing oh 10, God. 11 hours? My, I told the funny story. I came over to the DMC convention. And I was asked to play with Pete Tong and Nikki Holloway at Cindy Astoria. And, you know, I come from the school, you play first record and last record. Okay, you're a guest, DJ, but I assume that once I get on, I'm on. That's it. I played for 55 minutes, and then they were bringing on an act. It was Jermand at the time. And Pete Tong said, yo, thanks. That was great. I mean, I was like, huh? So nobody told me I was only playing for 55 minutes. Yeah. I just thought once I start, I'm, you know what I mean? I'm playing to whatever. I'm like, listen, I'm okay. I don't, no, 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 that's how we do things. I was like, and everybody from New York was like, what happened? And I'm like, all I was doing was warming up. I didn't even get to play any of my big records yet. You know what I mean? I, I didn't go anywhere. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like, wow, you know. It took me years to really, because I was never the, the kind, come on and shoot my load. Bang it. Mm. You know what I mean? I need two hours to get accustomed to acclimate to what's going on before I even go anywhere. I mean, you know, and it's, and it's, I mean, it's still like, I mean, okay, I, I prefer longer sets than short ones. And so when some guy's like, oh, two hours, oh, it's too long, I can't play, oh, oh my God, I'm tired. I'm like, huh? I'm like, man, you have no idea. I mean, my longest set was 27 hours. Where was that? At Club Ace Home, Stereo in Montreal, 27 hours. I mean, and I used to do once a month of an average for nine years, the last Saturday every month, and that was a minimum 15 hours. You know what I mean? You play first record, like you play whatever you play. It was great. And the mm. people were going anyway. They came for the music. You know what I mean? Strictly for the music. So, you know, and it was great. I mean, when, you, when, when it's your home, when it's your place, and you can do whatever you want, it's the beauty of it. I suppose the concept of a resident now doesn't even necessarily exist in modern dance music, not in the way that where someone's playing for 15 hours regularly. No, and you want to know something what's better about not being a, a resident. And by a, a resident, I don't mean somebody that just opens. Mm. Is that, see, when you're a real a resident and, and you know, you, you were able to break records. You know what I mean? You broke a record one week. They came the next week looking for that record because it was a promo. Nobody has it, you can't buy it. You know what I mean? People are like, oh, he played this record, my, they can't wait to hear that record, you know what I mean? I mean, that's how you broke records. And the longevity today of records is, you know what I mean? It's almost like non non-existent. I mean, since when is an artist putting out two albums in one year? Oh my God, you know what I mean? Mm. Or every year, you know what I mean? It's just, you know. Yeah, I, sp I suppose it, it's both the combination of lack of people breaking records, but also so, so much more music around nowadays that people feel I like mean, even the Winter Music around. Conference years ago, even in the Winter Music Conference, I mean, you know, in the vinyl days, there was always, 
there was one or two records that popped out from the conference that there was a big buzz on, you know what I mean, that everybody talked about. Now it's just, you know, you have Ultra Fest, it's just, it's like going to a festival for a week, you know what I mean, and so many DJs, and there's so many genres of music. I mean, at that time it was just house music, so, mm -hmm. you know, it was easier to, you know, to, to, to stuff. But today it's just, it's just all over the place, you know what I mean, and even for each genre of music, it's hard for things to come through. Do you find that limiting for younger DJs? Obviously, you come from a place where genres, you know, really didn't mean so much. You know, it, it was more varied when you first started playing. Now you get DJs playing very specific subgenres of music. Do you think that has a negative effect? I, I think it's kind of like limiting and actually boring to play one style of music. I mean, I like everything. No, I mean, you know, we played everything back in the day. I mean, you played Jordan Mavoda, you played Kraftwerk, uh, you played... Uh, so, you know, I think, and even in the early days, like even, I mean, in the 90s, I mean, you know, okay, you played some house and there was some techno-ish kind of things. Uh, you know, Pump Up the Jam was a different thing. Nice of the Jaguar was a different thing. I mean, What Time is Love was a different thing, but there were great records, you know what I mean? Snap the power, soul to soul, keep on moving. These were all played together during a night. You know what I mean? And it was interesting. You know what I mean? So for me, I feel if I just play one particular type of sound, it'd be linear for two hours. Just the same boom, boom, boom. Or drop after drop after drop, build up, build up, build up, build up, build up, build up. It's almost like playing one long record. And that's obviously not a great thing for the audience. Or, well, or it depends. might be. Yeah, no, yeah. for some audience, I mean, this is what yeah. it is. Yeah. This, is, it is, this is what it's become. Mm. This is what it's become. One thing where that isn't a thing is your Kings of House project. Yourself, Louis Vega, Tony Humphreys. How did you guys decide to play together? Because you must have known each other for, you know, many, many years. Oh, yeah, we each know, we know each other since the 80s. Mm. 25 years, easy. And years ago... Louis had a party called the Evil Souls, and me, him, and Tony played, and, and it was at Vinyl. We played together. And then John Davis that does Body and Soul wanted to do something again, and they had to come up with a name. So first it became Three Kings was the idea. That was the idea. It was me, Tony, and, and Louis. But the original concept was to play 90s house music, you know? So it was a huge success. Now it's Kings of House, New York City, as you know. So we were able to brand it, New York City. It's mine and Louis' project. I mean, Tony is um, he's a guest DJ, you know. But me and Louis run the thing. We you know we have you know. I mean, we've been making merchandising. We've been doing parties. We've we've been starting to tour around the world. I mean, we did Ministry of Sound. We did Hard Times. We did Italy. We're getting to do ready to do uh, Ibiza. The IM, IMS, IMF, mm -hmm. blah blah blah. It's been going really, really well. So what started as night, the thing is that me and Louis, we make records and Tony's, and you know, we, we don't want to play 90s music the whole time. So it's really, it's a combination of everything, new and old. Do you each bring something different to the table perhaps? You know? Do, do, well, it's funny, I think, well, we, we each do play, do our own thing. And then at some point it's almost like we do back to back or on top of each other, you know? Me and Louis really get along really well together. I mean, we'll be playing on top of each other. You know what I mean? It's not really back to back, together. You know mm. what I mean? What's brilliant is, it's so much fun because 
It's not scripted. We never know what's going on. It's it's really great when one of us pulls out a gem and we'll, we'll look at each other like, Tony will pull something out, out of his hat, Louis will pull something out and be like, so we all like, it's nice, we have fun. You know, we have fun. You know, there's a lot of history there. You know what I mean? So we, we dig, so it could be a disco record. Mm. You know what I mean? It could be something from the 70s, it could be something from the 80s, it could be something from the 90s, or something new as well. Is that perhaps the secret? You know, you've, you've been doing this for 40 years, is it about, you know, just trying to make it fun for yourself at the heart of it, you know, avoiding the business thing? Is that how you've stayed so engaged with dance music for all these years? I, I think the main thing is the passion for sure. My roots are one record at a time before the era of mixing, nonstop mixing. So we're going back a long time of what the culture was really about. And it's really music programming, a tune at a time, you know? It wasn't about being famous. It wasn't about festivals. It wasn't about even people looking at you while you were playing. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? You used to be in the corner. You could be behind the glass. Nobody, you know what I mean? You were somewhere in the stratosphere. Nobody saw you, but people came because the music was good. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't about, you know, people looking at you. I mean, this is what it's become. I don't know how to do anything else. It's, it's, it's the reality. You know what I mean? 40 years, so I don't work. You know what I'm saying? I look at it as work. Um, Sometimes a gig can be flat, for sure. I mean, who doesn't have, it's about consistency. You know what I mean? Two nights are better than two out of three, you know what I mean? I mean, like I said, I love Ableton now. I love it that I get inspired, I hear something, oh, I want to do this to it. I mean, you know, right away, boom, 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 boom. And I look forward to playing it. You know, it's, it's, it's all of that. Mm. Do you perhaps have a career highlight that you, you know, over those 40 years you think, you know, perhaps something that stands out the most is, is, is something you feel super proud of. I'm proud of to be where I am today. I think that's the way to sum it up. 40 years. I'm 52 years old. Mm. I still feel I'm at the top of my game. I haven't lost a step. I still have a passion for it. It's not a competition. So when people say, oh, this one's a better DJ, better than this one, mm. It's bullocks, you know what I mean? This is not a, it's not a sport, you know what I'm saying? I learned things from other people. I learned things from David Mancuso at the law for it. It wasn't about mixing, it was about selection, record at a time, you know, great sound, level management. Mm. You know, there's, there's a lot of how to manipulate sounds, how to manipulate songs to people. You know what I mean? It's a whole, I don't wanna say there's a science to it, but it's more than just putting on a pair of gloves and like, putting on, you know, sparkly headphones and like, woo, 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 and, you know, make a heart and so, you know mm. what I mean? It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's just something, I want to have as much fun with the people. Mm. I don't want to be in my own world. I want to be in the same, I want to be in a world together. Yeah. Has that ever been a challenge in your career? Um, because at various points, you know, you have been marketed as something of a superstar DJ for want of a better expression. But, you know, throughout this interview, you've talked about, you know, the culture and, and the importance of, you know, selection and things like that. Has that ever been a challenge to kind of bring those two worlds for people to understand what David Morales is, is really about? You know, you're not about necessarily superstar DJs and things like that. Well, I, I think because I've managed it well mm. is why I'm still out here. You know, so it's, it's not a fad, you know, it's natural. It's, you know, it's natural. It's like, right, you know, it's, it's just there. I mean, so I was explaining this to someone. They said, well, how do you become a good DJ? And it's like, it's not about trying to 
become something. You can teach someone the fundamentals. You understand? You can t teach someone how to beat match and all those kind of things. But he has to have his own ear. You know what I mean? He has to hear music. He's only going to hear music in his way. I can't explain to him to hear music how I hear music. He's going to have to hear it. He or she has to hear it the way they hear it. You know, it's like you and I, somebody can give us a 10 records, the same 10 records. The difference is, is going to be how we chain those 10 records together that will make the difference between you and I. We're going to tell two different stories. Don't go, 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 don't go